Our reading today uh, comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, 21 through 42. And when Jesus had crossed again uh, in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he uh, was beside the sea. They came, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn here because I can't see that. Um, (laughs) uh, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. I bother the teacher any further. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he, followed no, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the gospel of the Lord. Large crowd. Have you ever been in a really, really large crowd where it's hard to walk around? I remember going, uh, going downtown Detroit to see the lighting of the Christmas tree, and I've never been so nervous in a crowd before because I was just squeezed in, and our daughter was trying to hold their hands, and, and, and people all around. That's how it was. That's how it was on this day. There was this crowd swarming and, and jostling and, and pulsing. Everybody was trying to get their moment, to get their few words, to, to get their handshake from the teacher. The teacher, as he, he moves in the midst of this crowd, pushing and, and elbowing and squeezing his way through the masses. And a man finds his way to push himself through. He was an important man, a man with an air of authority, a man accustomed to being listened to and obeyed. 
He was one of the synagogue leaders in the town. Actually, when, when we read about synagogue leaders, in a way, they were kind of like worship leaders. They picked what readings were going to be done on a Sunday, and they might, they might take care of the buildings, maybe a little bit unlike a worship leader or maybe a little bit more like a worship leader. They were like, like the guy about the church, right? They took care of things and made sure it was ready for worship on the Sabbath. And so this man pushes through, and, and he falls at the feet of Jesus. A posture of submission. A posture of worship. A posture of begging. And that's exactly what he does. Barely able to keep it together, he announces that his little daughter, his precious baby, is moments from death. Can the teacher do anything for her? Jesus, please, all you need to do is come and lay your hands on her and she will be made well. She will be saved. She will be healed. And the teacher's followers spring into action. A dozen men or so, all moving at once. This, this burst of activity, noise and commotion at all sides as they prepare to set off. Where, where's the house? Which direction? Which is the quickest way to get there? We don't have any time to lose. And so his followers start pushing through the crowd, trying to make a path for the teacher as best as they can. And, and the people flail and grab and, and try and get one last moment, one last glimpse before Jesus leaves. And then suddenly... As if running into an invisible wall, the teacher stops. The little girl will be healed, as we heard in our reading. In the verse that we hear after that, after she raises from the dead and starts walking around, Jesus says, give her something to eat. She's probably hungry. She just died. We're not going to focus on her healing tonight. We're going to focus on why Jesus stopped. Because this little girl would not be healed or raised until after this interruption. Right, there's so much happening in, in our gospel reading. There's, there's crowds and, and dignitaries and disciples on a mission to save a dying girl. But among all of them, among all the people, there is one more. There's a woman. A woman who is invisible to everyone in this emergency scenario. Invisible to everyone except for maybe one person. We're not given a name. We hear the name of the synagogue leader, Jairus. This woman, we're not told her name, but she's invisible. She's alone because of the illness with which she struggles. Have you or, or someone you loved ever, ever struggled with a chronic condition? And you know how lonely it can be, how isolating it can be. This woman has been kept away from society, not just its pleasure. She doesn't, get, she doesn't get invited to people's houses for dinner, but also the ordinary parts of the day. She doesn't go to the market with everybody. She's got this mountain of medical debt that eats away at her finances. She spent every penny that she has. But she is separated. She is distanced from those around her because a flow of blood that makes her unclean. You can read all about this in, in Leviticus 15 and, 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 and the, the rules and, and the uh, uh, ritual cleansings. And because she was unclean, 
she was not to be associated with until she was clean. So God-fearing Jews would not be associated with her. And she shouldn't be near them either. And she certainly knows better. It's been drilled into her head for the last 12 years. She can't let anyone touch her. And she can't touch anybody else either, much less a rabbi. This woman is alone in the crowd. Maybe you felt like that. All these people, and there you are, but it feels like there is no one around you. But I love, it, says, it says that she heard the reports of Jesus. She heard about the things that this rabbi does. And actually, I think more specifically, she hears about what other people do in his presence because all throughout Mark, leading up to this part and after this part, there is time and time again when people come to Jesus just to touch his robe. She's not the first one. She heard that people touch his robe and they're healed. And she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, maybe I can be healed too. Knowing that she is risking something, knowing that she is risking herself and making the people around her unclean, but risking the rabbi and making him unclean as well. And so she goes by this, this nameless woman. She stretches out her hand, reaching between knees and, and ankles, just trying to stretch out. And then everything felt different. She felt it inside of her. Our text says that the flow of blood dried up. The flow of blood that had been going for 12 years was gone. She knew that she was healed of her diseases as soon as it happened. But Jesus stopped too because he noticed something as soon as it happened. He asked the question, who touched my clothes? Now notice the disciples, they don't repeat the question correct. They say, Jesus, there's all these people around you and yet you ask, who touched me? That's not what Jesus asked. He said, who, who, who touched my clothes? It's not because he was confused. Jesus' question echoes another question that God had asked Adam in the garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is after they had eaten from the tree God told them not to eat from. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Did God lose them? Where did I, where did I put those people I created? God knows exactly where they are. He doesn't need to search for them. He is giving Adam an opportunity to step out of the shadows, an opportunity to come back into the light, an opportunity to stop being hidden and to be seen. And it's the same here with this question that Jesus asked the woman, who touched my, my clothes? And we lose this a little, bit, a little bit in the translation, but the fact is that, that in the original language in verse 30, and I'm not trying to pull one of those look all, at all the Greek on you, um, but, 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 but it says, he turned out to see the one who had touched him. Jesus knows who it was. 
Of course he does. But he was not looking for which one of them touched him. He was looking for the one who he knew touched him. This question isn't for him to figure out the answer. It's for the woman. It's the opportunity for this woman who had been excluded, who had been marginalized, who had been forgotten. It was her opportunity to be seen. But being seen can kind of cut both ways. How many of you, when, when you think of being seen, think about being found out, about being exposed, not measuring up, not being good enough, a fraud, right? Imposter syndrome is something we hear a lot about. That's why the woman came up trembling before Jesus. Because being seen, being seen by Jesus and the others around her brought a risk. For one thing, if Jesus had the power to heal her, he certainly had the power to take the healing back. She didn't ask for permission, she just took it. But it's also a risk because she had broken a taboo. And for us, as we talk about asking for help, so often this is why we don't ask for help. Because being seen, being too seen carries a risk. A Stanford social psychologist, uh, Xuan Zhao, um, has a field of study in asking for help. And she said, people don't ask for help for three reasons. Number one, it makes me appear as incompetent, as weak, or inferior. And she says that this phenomenon goes all the way down to seven-year-old kids. I might argue it goes even, even further. How many of you remember doing this or remember your kids doing this where they're, they're doing something like maybe about to pour from the big jug of milk and you say, here, let me help you. And they say, no, I do it. Right? No, I'm a big kid. I'm a big kid. I'm trying to prove to you and to myself that I can do it. I don't want your help. I don't need your help because if I, if I ask for your help, then I'm, I'm, I'm admitting that I'm just a baby. No, I do it. People don't ask for help because they're concerned about being rejected. You ask someone for help and they say, no, I'm too busy. No, I can't. The interesting thing in, the, in this study is even though people are afraid to ask for help, she said people are, are more than willing to help, which is amazing. Third, you might be concerned about burdening or inconveniencing others, right? I, I, I don't want to put you out. I don't, I don't want you to have to, have to carry my burdens. I'm, I'm just not going to ask. Because when I ask for help, I have to admit that I don't know something, that, 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 that I can't get it done. And other people, right, all of those other people who have it all together, they'll look down on me. They'll pity me. I'll lose status. I'll lose friends. Maybe I'll lose my job. Brothers and sisters, being seen is risky. But let's look at what happened when, when Jesus sees. In John chapter 4, it says this, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Seeing her, but seeing her, 
give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus didn't just just see her as, as a Samaritan woman. Jesus didn't, didn't just see her as, as a woman with a past, a woman, a woman with a history, a woman who had been married many times and the man that she's currently with is not her husband. Jesus saw her. Jesus saw someone who needed the living water that he had to offer. John chapter 8, another woman This woman caught in the act of adultery and brought in front of Jesus by by the the religious leaders, used as a pawn in a game trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus says, let the one who's without without sin, you 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 get to throw the first stone. And one by one by one, they all disappear until only Jesus and the woman are left. And Jesus says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Is it that she didn't need condemning? She was very, very well of her sin. She felt the law of the sin as people pointed at her, as people people dragged her out into the open in front of Jesus, threatening to throw stones at her. She felt the weight of the law. Jesus saw a woman who needed forgiveness who needed care. One more, Mark chapter three. And again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus, they, the religious leaders, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him and invited him to come close to him. And then Jesus said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill? The religious leaders were silent and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus saw this man. He he didn't see him as a a pawn in, in these religious leaders' plan to try and trip him up. He saw him as someone in need of healing, not someone to be used as an object lesson. To be seen by Jesus is to receive welcome, to receive inclusion in his presence now and and even into the promises of eternal life. To be seen by Jesus is to be restored rather than condemned. To be seen by Jesus is to have wounds, even old wounds, healed. And this is the way that Jesus sees us. He sees sees with compassion and care. He sees with the love of a shepherd for his struggling sheep. He sees with the love of a savior for helpless souls. It's how he sees the three I just mentioned. It's how he sees the woman from our reading. And by the way, she might might not have been given a name like Jairus. 
But Jesus sees her and he calls her daughter. Relational words that she probably hasn't heard in 12 years. That's how Jesus sees you and me. And that, that has become true. Jesus seeing us like that. It's become unquestionably true. It's become always true at the specific moment that you were baptized. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a new creation. What you are now, what you are forever is loved enough to die for. Welcomed forever to the family table. Along the way, forgiven and renewed, restored and healed. You are worthy of a place in the kingdom and you are destined for it. And this is who you are, not because of anything that you did or anything in your past. This is who you are because Jesus said. Because Jesus said it. And and this rock-solid identity empowers us to ask for help. But let's be real. How Jesus feels about you and me is not going to stop our friends or other people from looking down on us when we ask for help. It's not going to stop those things. But if you are who Jesus says you are and nothing can change that, then if people look down on you because you ask for help, you are who you are because Jesus said it. If they stopped inviting you to things because you were real with them and exposed your vulnerability, You are who you are because Jesus said it. If you need to admit to not knowing something, to to not having it all together, you are who you are because Jesus said it. If your boss reassigns reassigns you or stops giving you good projects or, or even if he fires you, you are who you are because Jesus said it. Nothing The way way that the world looks at us, none of that can ever change that identity that you have been given in Jesus. Asking for help carries risks. But the one thing that is never at risk is who you are and what is in store for you in Jesus. And so that gives us permission, that gives us confidence to, to beg to admit, to reveal, to be vulnerable, to ask for help. Allow Jesus to ask you, where are you? To call you out of hiding, to call you out of shame, so that you can have the confidence, the assurance of who you are in him. And it's who he says you are. Brothers and sisters, it's okay to ask for help. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the peace of God that transcends all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until life everlasting. Amen.